mercy. Everyone has found their place. Let's begin reading. We'll read the entire chapter. Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All of the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. And tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all of the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he breaks out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us and preserving us this great word. Father, we desperately need your help if we are going to understand your word, if we're going to make proper sense of your word, if we're going to make proper application of your word. Father, it will only be because, Father, you've enabled us to. So, Father, we all look to you in one accord, and we ask, Father, that you would teach us this morning. You would guide us and lead us into all truth, which is yours. In Jesus' precious name and for your glory, amen and amen. This morning, we set our studies in Daniel's side for a few weeks so that we may begin a new series of messages for what the church has historically called uh, the season of Advent, which is really the uh, four Sundays before uh, Christmas. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to give you a sort of heads up as to what's coming. Uh, the overarching theme of the next four messages is going to be restoring what is lost. So if you might think of, uh, if you might think of a little book, if you turn to the inside cover, it would say in the boldest, in the biggest print, it would say restoring what is lost. And then the the next four messages, starting with this morning, will be chapters, if you will, of that particular theme. And one of the things that is certainly lost today, and I, I don't mean to be unkind, but I think you all agree with me that in 21st century America, especially in evangelicalism, uh, the sense of wonder and awe over God stepping into our world seems to be somewhat lost to us. Uh, that is our goal this morning is to try to uh, call on God and to look into his word that uh, some of that sense of awe and wonder may be restored to us. Now, uh, someone might say, well, uh, okay, um, how, it's Christmas time, correct? And this is the season that we call Advent, correct? And yes, uh, yes to both of these things. Uh, okay, what are we doing in Exodus 19? <laughs> it seems an odd choice for passages. Uh, shouldn't we be in Matthew 1 or uh, maybe Luke 1 or 2? Shouldn't we be in those passages? And, and of course, yes, those are great, great places to be. And we'll make reference to those places as we go along. But um, the reason that we're in Exodus 19, I think, will become very clear. But let me whet your appetite uh, throughout its history, the church has had a tendency to really toggle between two positions. Uh, in, in, in one sense, the church has had a tendency to really uh, embrace and emphasize God's closeness. Uh, his, uh, his gracious and personal connection and interrelatedness with his people, if you will. There's a technical word for that. It's called God's imminence. Maybe some of you have heard that word before. God's imminence. It's God's gracious and fatherly and even motherly, as we're going to see this morning, motherly care of his people. And we live in a day, we live in an hour in church history where that really is the emphasis. Now, on the other side of the coin, throughout church history, there have been times when another emphasis has been at play. And that is what perhaps I'll call God's holy distance, his holy distance. And uh, uh, this would, uh, would encompass God's great majesty, uh, his, gr his great awesomeness, if you will, his great godness, if you will, his separateness from 
from his creation, if you will. And there's a technical term for that as well, and it's called God's transcendence. His transcendence. And both of these things are true about God. We need, as we work through this earthly pilgrimage, we need to really try to keep both of these things in balance because we can fall into all kinds of errors if we, if we emphasize one uh, at the exclusion of the other. And we live in a, a day today where it seems to me, and you can all correct me if I'm wrong, that'd be fine. But I, I think that if you look, it really as we look at our own hearts, I think oftentimes we so embrace God's imminence, we so embrace God's closeness to us, we so embrace um, uh, the, the you and me with God on the mountain that we do so at the almost complete exclusion of his transcendence, of the fact that God is holy. I, I think it, it's even difficult for us, because we've embraced his imminence so long, it's difficult, I think, for us to even grasp what that, what that means, that God is holy. Whereas in previous generations, they got that, they had that. They had the holiness of God, they, they had that. They had uh, God's transcendence, if you will. Uh, that he is mighty, that he is separate and unique from all of creation. They have that, but perhaps at the exclusion of his imminence. Now, what happens as we begin to embrace God's transcendence? What happens as we begin to do that? Our hearts begin to be filled with awe and wonder. We might even think of the construction of church buildings in, in the Middle Ages. How did they build church buildings? Did they build church buildings the way we build church buildings today? No. They built these massive cathedrals, didn't they? These massive cathedrals that when you walked into these places, you, just by the architecture and the construction, you were filled with, with praise right from the onset. What's that all about? They embraced God's transcendence. Our text this morning is one of many texts that reveal God's holy distance from his people. And it's also interestingly, I mean, I'll just ask you, have you ever heard a sermon on Exodus 19 before? If anyone's ever heard a sermon on Exodus 19, raise your hand. I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon on Exodus 19. Exodus 20, we'd probably all raise our hands. Why? Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. But um, what about Exodus 19? We don't hear about Exodus 19 uh, very much. Um, so this morning, what I would really like to do, it's probably not a text that's really, really familiar to many of us. What I want to do really this morning is just kind of work inductively through it. If I might just do a, a, most of our time will be spent doing a survey of this chapter. We can't go into all the details. We'll be here for quite a long time. And I'm trying to resist the temptation to save some details for another day and not dump a boatload of stuff on you. Uh, but um, I think as we start to do a survey of this, some of the connections that I want to make this morning will become clear. If we look at verse 1, it tells us that on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, uh, the third new moon, it's about seven weeks after Israel's been delivered from Egypt. And verse 2 tells us that they came into the wilderness of Sinai and that they encamped before the mountain. Now, all of this is going on. Verse 3, uh, Moses, he goes up to the mountain with God. In verse 3, 
And uh, uh, the Lord calls to Moses in verse 3 saying, uh, you shall say to the people of Israel, and that brings us to verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, this is a really beautiful passage in verse 4. It's one that we... It's one that often gets overshadowed by what comes later in the text. Uh, it really does. So I want to spend a little time on verse 4. When we look at verse 4, we could ask ourselves, what's, being, what's in view here? God's imminence or God's transcendence? Uh, obviously, God's imminence, His closeness, His love and nurturing care is seen in the imagery and the metaphors that we're given. He says, you yourselves, speaking to Israel, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. It's a wonderful, wonderful little metaphor that brings to mind a mother with her young. A mother protects her young. A mother nurtures her young. You want to make mama bear mad? Mess with the cubs. And mama bears mad, right? It's a wonderful thing. It's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the idea that we have here. Uh, You know, we we might even make some application right now. I mean, another error of modern times is really to speak about salvation as if it's the end. Oftentimes you'll hear that talked, you know, uh, especially in the Protestant church, you'll hear that talked where, you know, we, we speak about salvation. You got saved. So that's the goal. That's the end. That's the end goal. That's what God's up to. He's just simply up to getting us saved and reconciling us to himself. And there's no more to that. But. Uh, I want to remind you, and this is going to become really, really important if we're going to understand Exodus 19. There's three things that are really important here. And what are they? The context, context, and what's the third one? Context, right? We've got to constantly keep the context here in mind. and We're going to run a file in Exodus 19 very easily. And what we have to keep in mind here is Israel's already been delivered. They've already been delivered out of Egypt, which is really emblematic of being delivered from sin. Pharaoh being the oppressor, the taskmaster, is emblematic of the evil one. He was holding the people of God at bay. They couldn't get free. They had to serve, the, they had to serve Pharaoh. And they've been delivered out of Egypt. They've been, they've been rescued. They've been saved out of, Israel, or out of Egypt, if you will. That's already taken place. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, In verse 4, we see that God's goal isn't simply just to spring them loose out of Egypt and then let them go. It's not simply just to reach down, if you will, and put a key into into the lock of the cage and open up the cage and say, okay, there you go, you're free now, you can go do whatever you want. That's not what God's up to at all. He's not simply just delivering them out of Egypt, but He is bringing them to Himself. He is drawing them to himself. He is reaching out and he is taking them just as an eagle bears her young on her wings. Just as a, as a, 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 a mama bear would hold her cubs and protect her cubs. This is the imagery of God. A very, very, very intimate uh, little thing that's going on here. 
So the goal here is not simply salvation, but it's reconciliation with God. The goal, we can easily make application. God's goal in, in coming to us and setting us free from our sins, setting us free from the wrath to come, isn't simply just to set, to, 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 so that we would avoid the, uh, the horrors and terrors of hell, but so that God can actually bring us close to himself in this fatherly care, in this motherly care, and nurture each one of us. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. Now, verse 5. Now, therefore. Notice the word, therefore. I've said this many times. What's the therefore tell us? It's a concluding word that points back to what was there before, right? That's a good way to remember it. When you see a therefore, you're reading scripture, you see a therefore, okay, it's pointing back. It's a conclusion. It's a concluding word. It's pointing back to what has come before us. Now, if you're a reader of Exodus, if you've read Exodus, you understand what's come before. If you've never read Exodus, let me just give you a brief summary of what's come before. Uh, the people of God are in Egypt. They've been in Egypt since, uh, uh, since Jacob has migrated to Egypt to avoid the famine. That's when Joseph was, was prime minister of Egypt. And then a number of centuries have gone by. And since those centuries have gone by, uh, the uh, Israelites have fallen into slavery. Uh, they've become slaves to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has been treating them so ruthlessly, so harshly, that they've called out to God. They've cried out to God. And they've said, rescue us, deliver us, redeem us. And God has heard their cries. And he has raised up a deliverer, Moses. And furthermore, he has cast plagues upon each of Egypt's gods. The ten plagues, all those Weird things we read about that go on. They all have connections with each of the gods that are in Egypt's pantheon. And that's all a story for another day. But God has delivered them from the evil oppression of Pharaoh. He's brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He is nurturing them. He is guiding them. He has taken them to himself like a mother with her young. And therefore, in lieu of all of this, verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice, the Lord says, and keep my covenant, speaking to Israel, his people. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, this is a sermon for another day, all of this that's going on here. But uh, again, it's important to remember the context. Israel's already delivered. See, if we don't remember that, and we get to verse 5, we can say, well, I got it. Okay, if I obey God's commandments, then he's going to do these wonderful things for me. Well, this is how we get right with God. I'm going to be his treasured possession. And this is how I'm going to be his treasured possession. I'm going to obey all his laws. You see how you can come to that conclusion quite easily? If you're not mindful of the context. They're out of Egypt. They're not in Egypt no more. This only applies to those who have been brought out of Egypt. That's who God's speaking to. That's the context. He's not speaking to the whole world here. He's speaking to those who he's brought out of Egypt. He's speaking to a particular people here, isn't he? We need to remember that. Now, there's something else that we need to pull together here. On the night before Israel was delivered, they were told to do what? Some of you will remember. They were told to take a lamb. There was strict specifications for the lamb. And they were to take this lamb, they were to slaughter the lamb, and they were to take some of its blood, and they were to do what? 
They were to put it on the doorposts, right? Why? Because the tenth and final plague was against the firstborn of Egypt. And when the angel of destruction came into the land of Egypt, when he saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over the occupants inside. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no redemption. So they were saved by the blood of the lamb, so to speak, if you will. And now back to verse 5. Now that Israel has been delivered, God is calling his people to keep the covenant. Do you see that little phrase, keep the covenant? What in the world does that mean? Keep the covenant. Well, what's meant by a covenant, first of all? You know, one of the books in my library that I'm really fond of is a book that's written by David Mackay. And it's, it, 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 the book concerns God's covenantal dealings with his people. That's what the book is about. And this is the title. Listen to this title. The title is called The Bond of Love. That is such a great title. The Bond of Love. Let's think about what a bond is. A bond is something that ties something together. Right? It's something that causes this adhesion. And in fact, in law, in law, a bond is an agreement that has legal force. So we keep those things in mind. We have this bond that, that ties something together by love. Now, uh, what is God up to here? He's introducing what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It's an agreement that will have legal force. And uh, God is saying this. He's saying, listen, if you will keep this bond of love, okay, then you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and a treasured possession. Now, really, what's going on here is quite simple. God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He has demonstrated this great love and great commitment to the people of Israel. And he's asking for a response. And the response that God's looking for is a response of love. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus goes to the cross for us, dies in our place, so that we can have new life in him. And as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to see that, as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to believe that, there's a response that's expected by God, isn't there? What is that response? It's a response of love. You see, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's the same thing. They are to respond to God by loving him. Now, if they love him, what will they do? They'll keep his commandments. Jesus says that, doesn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. No different than a, a child that loves his or her father or his or her mother. What does the child do? I was talking with a man down in Weirton uh, the other day, and uh, he was quite a character. He, but he was very insightful in many ways, and and uh, he was talking about some of the some of the children that are in his family and the way they treat their parents. And uh, he, uh, their parents were his children. The kids were his grandchildren, and he had a funny way of saying. It. He says, "Man, I tell them, I tell them, and I tell them, they don't love you like I love my mama." We loved our mama, and we took care of our mama. They ain't never going to come see you when you get old. And he was just going on and on and on. And I'm listening to him, and I'm thinking, wow, this is spot on. 
They ain't never going to come see you because they don't love you like we love my mama. I love my mama. I come see my mama. I never talk to my mama like you talk to your mama. And if my daddy heard me talk to your mama like that, he would have smacked me. I mean, he just went on. It's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? If we love our father, if we really love him, we're going to try to please him. Not to get saved, but because we are saved. Now, we come to verse 8. Moses relays all of these things to the people. And in verse 8, he says, All the people answered together and, and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What we have going on in verse 8 is Moses is conveying all these things to the people. The idea of keeping this covenant. Uh, the idea of remembering what God has done for them. And they're responding, saying, sure, we're in. Uh, we'll keep the covenant. And then we come to verse 9. And the Lord said uh, to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. And we also learn here that he's coming to them in such a way that Moses is not the only one that's going to hear, uh, their vo- to hear the Lord's voice. In other words, God is, God is about to step into our world. God is about to step into our world. Let me qualify that for a moment. When I say God is about to step into our world, I'm not ascribing ownership of the universe to us. I'm not saying we own this place. This is our world. God, you have no business being here. That's the way we act. When I mean that God is about to step into our world, I mean God is stepping into the realm in which we dwell, in which we live and move and have our being. I want to be really clear about that. God is about to step into our world. And so far, we've been considering really God's imminence, his close and gracious presence with his people. But verse 9 and onward, God's about to demonstrate his transcendence. That is his separateness, his distance, his greatness, his majesty, his holy holiness. If you look with me to verse 10, the Lord instructs Moses to go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Uh, to consecrate something is to set it apart and render it, to render it holy. Uh, to dedicate it as holy. And it's kind of illustrated by the idea of washing their garments. Uh, This uh, consecration was probably accompanied by a sacrifice. The text doesn't tell this. That's conjecture for sure. Uh, um, uh, But there was probably some type of sacrifice that was taking place there. Uh, We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us, but most likely the case. Now, if you look down with me to verse 12... Moses is to set limits for the people all around. You see, we've been talking about God's imminence, his closeness, his nurture, and his, his, his care here. But see, the, he, Moses is to set limits for the people all around. They're to stand at a distance here. In fact, we are told, if we look at these texts here, we're told that their foot is not to even touch the mountain. What, what happens if they touch the mountain? They're to be stoned or shot, that is shot by an arrow. See, neither forms of execution would involve somebody touching that person because they're forbidden not to even touch a person who touched the mountain. Some distance there, isn't there? Some distance there. Now, before we go any further, let me point out to you that Moses is functioning kind of a go-between. Notice Moses is kind of going between. 
Moses goes up to the mountain, talks with God, comes back, talks to the people. Goes up, talks to God, comes back, talks to the people. Back and forth, back and forth, go between. There's a technical word for that. We sing about it. We use the word in many of our songs. In fact, we have a song entitled Mediator that we sing. Moses is functioning here as a mediator, a go-between, one who goes between the people of God and God himself. Moses didn't take this upon himself. He was chosen for this task. Now, beginning in verse 16, God is about to step down into our realm, into our world. If you look at verses 16 and following with me, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I think we could summarize this whole matter here, verses 16 to 20, with one, with one word. The word would be terrifying. This is absolutely terrifying. If I might read a verse that we read earlier in our service. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, we read these words. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I tremble with fear. There's an attribute of God that we never talk about, and it's the attribute of dread. The attribute of dread. It means fear and trepidation and its cause. Its cause is this. Its cause is God's infinite holiness. Uh, we're sinful creatures. As we come into the presence of he who is infinitely holy, what happens? What happens is we find ourselves being measured by the straight edge of his perfection, which does nothing more than to really expose all of our, our imperfections. We can think of Isaiah and his vision and where he saw the Lord seated in his temple. And the train of his robe fills the whole temple. What's, what's, uh, what does, uh, how does Isaiah respond to that? He says, woe is me. The whole idea is I'm coming apart here at the seams. I'm through. I'm toast. Now, it should be said right away from the start that Israel did not see God. They did not see God. What they're seeing is a result of his coming. They're seeing the result of his revealing one particular aspect of himself here. This is another side of God that's being revealed here. The thunder and lightning that really magnify his power. We see his power there, the thick clouds, you know, uh, kind of veils the whole thing, which would probably lead you in one respect to wonder what's inside. But in another respect to say, I don't know that I want to find out. I think it would cause you to be kind of back and forth there. It's mysterious. The fire reminds us of several passages of scripture. One we read this morning that God is a consuming fire. We don't talk about that much, do we? That God is a consuming fire. And the whole mountain is trembling. I mean, this puts a whole new uh, uh, idea to Hebrews 10.31, which reads, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. 
Now, why would God reveal himself to us like this? Why would he do that? John Calvin answers this way. He says, we must bear in mind what I have already adverted to, that this terrible spectacle was partly to set the presence of God before their eyes, that his majesty might urge the beholders to obedience and vindicate his doctrine from contempt. That's on one side. I'll say something about that in a moment. On the other side, it's partly to express the nature of the law, which in itself produces nothing but mere terror. The air was disturbed by thunder and lightnings, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain was wrapped in smoke and darkness that the people might humbly prostrate themselves before God and solemnly embrace the covenant proposed to them. Since religion never penetrates the mind so that it seriously receives God's word until its vices are cleansed and corrected and it is really subdued. End of quote. What is Calvin saying? It's hard to sit there and listen to a quote like this and get it. What Calvin is saying is vitally important here. He's, what he's saying is that God is showing us this so that one, first of all, God's presence would be set before us. So that God's presence would be set before us. So that we would behold him. And also uh, that God has shown us that his majesty would motivate us to obedience. Uh, That we would take his word seriously. So that we would understand the nature of his law. This gets fleshed out a little bit when we look at verses 20 to 21. Look there with me. And one more thing. I'm going to put this all together for you. In verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Now, notice Moses' response in verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mount, up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. What's Moses say in response to that? The Lord said to him, Go down and come. And come up, bring an Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. What's going on here? God tells Moses, warn the people not to come up. Moses goes up. God says, go tell the people not to come up. Moses says, God, you already, they're not going to come up. You already told them not to come up. God says, go tell them not to come up. What's in view here? It's the fact we don't listen. We don't listen. Moses is a little naive here. We already told him. They're not coming up. No, no, no. Moses, you better get back down there. Tell him again and tell him again and tell him again. That's what all the lightning's about. That's what all the thundering's about. I am holy. And I will be regarded as holy. Tell them not to come up. Now, the the whole history from this point on demonstrates we're not very good at following orders, are we? We don't keep the commandments. We don't keep the covenant. We don't listen, do we? But if nobody keeps the covenant, what will happen? There will be no salvation. Now, let's forward the calendar 1,500 years. And let's go to this little obscure town called Bethlehem. 
And let's zero down on this peasant girl, this young woman named Mary. She has just given birth to a son. Who is that son? His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Heaven only has one God. The God who is revealing himself, stepping into our world in Exodus 19, is the very one and same God who goes through the birth canal in that lowly manger in Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? And why is he doing this? He's got a covenant to keep. He's got to keep the covenant. He will keep the covenant for 33, approximately 33 years, perfectly in our place. And he will not be shedding the blood of a lamb when his work is concluded. He will go to the cross and he will do the absolutely unthinkable. He will shed his very own blood so that the likes of you and I can be spared those terrors of Mount Sinai. Because when it comes to law keeping, all you've got to look forward to is Mount Sinai. But what does the author to the letter of Hebrews say to us? You've not come to such a mountain as this. You've not come to Mount Sinai with the thunderbolts and the lightnings and the earth that's trembling so much that even Moses, the mediator, was terrified with fear. No, no. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of God. God will shake his creation one more time. All of heaven and earth will shake in judgment so that what is passing may pass away and so that what is not created may remain. And the children of God, the children who are sheltered, the children whom God is bearing up like an eagle with its young, the children who believe will never be shaken, but will be taken into the new Jerusalem, into the new heavens, to the new earth. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you, Father. We so desperately need your help, Father, that this examination would not end here, but that we would continue to examine these things, Father, until you fill our hearts with wonder and awe and amazement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, who is indeed one and the same, Father. We recognize that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is one and the same as he who revealed himself on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Oh, Father, teach us these things, that, oh, Father, our hearts may be, uh, that that which is lost in our hearts may be restored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.